Welcome to Drones Flying Free 2018. We're thrilled to have you with us for our second session today as we get your questions answered. We collected questions, sorted them, and shared them with our panelists. They've prepared some very thoughtful answers for you on a variety of topics. A warm welcome to Abby Spiker, founder and CEO, with Jerry White, an airline pilot and instructor, both from Dart Drones. Jonathan Beck from Northland Community and Technical College in Minnesota, Eric DeLucian from UC San Diego, and Sue Bickford, owner of New England UAV and also the stewardship coordinator and GIS specialist at the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve in Wells, Maine. I'm Barbara Duke, Managing Editor at Directions Mag with Dr. Rich Schultz, Associate Director of the Geotech Center and co-PI of the NSF grant. So let's get right to it. Jerry, how do you not fly over people or moving vehicles per Part 107 regs? This is a great question, and it's something that people have been really wrestling with, and I see that people probably have the most questions and might even break the law on this the most, of flying over and around people, and that kind of goes with um, just people participating, uh, standing around, or or even on roads and, and in cars. And, you know, Flying above non-participating people, which is kind of the key here, um, is not only illegal per Part 107, but it also just poses a, you know, an, an undue hazards to those people that aren't participating in the event. But you know, we we got to face it that you know, getting a high vantage point to document a large event or even supply security if that was needed to a large event involving people, that's a great use of a drone and. It's important to understand this mission can still be accomplished through just proper flight planning, having a great site survey, understanding where you're at, and then putting some thought into it, putting some forethought into what you're going to be doing. And, you know, oftentimes when people say, hey, I want this, you know, shot of the big crowd, you know, they, they, they want to see that shot. Um, the, pers- the perspective that they're looking for is not necessarily one that you need to be directly over a crowd. Uh, give you an example. I was recently a, a, approached to do a, a, a shoot for uh, a photo shoot uh, with my drone um, for a large music festival here in Austin, Texas. And, and the shot that they wanted was this great shot of, of this massive crowd in a city skyline behind the stage. And, you know, we've all kind of seen this kind of shot before. And thinking about what the end user wanted and kind of what that shot needed to be, it we I wasn't... It, it wouldn't have done me any good to get right in the middle of the whole crowd, fly above and just get the tops of a bunch of balding heads and baseball caps. It, it, that doesn't, that doesn't suffice what the shot is, is needed for. So really what I was, what I did is just got, got about a quarter of a mile away and from the main crowd, the main stage, launched the drone to a safe altitude away from everybody and was able to get this great epic shot of, you know, thousands of people, huge stages and then this beautiful city skyline uh you know be, beyond them and everybody was really really happy and and so again we were showing crowds we're showing all this but we're not we're not breaking any of these 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 107 rules now sometimes you know we need to get a little closer to the action we need to kind of feel like we need to be you know you know in this action and I think to me, one of the best um, uses that I've seen this happen was uh, about a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, from some really tragic events that happened in Charlottesville during a protest where, I don't know if you remember it, a car plowed through uh, a crowd, killing one person and injuring about 19 other folks. 
And a, we, we saw this as a nation from a drone. And, and we got to see this, and this, this drone uh, footage was uh, piped to all the different uh, news affiliates across the country. And at first, a lot of people were like, oh, what's this drone operator doing? He's flying above all these protesters and, and this sort of thing. But what showed was, um, after a little bit of investigation, was this was a responsible 107 operator because they knew the rules of you can't fly above people, but they knew they wanted to get close to this protest happening, is they positioned the drone in themselves right above a building. And uh, the reason why we have these rules is in case something happens to the drone, drone falls out of the sky, it's gotta, it's gotta land in a place that it's not gonna hurt people. And, and that's what exactly what this person did is they just kept the drone directly above a building so that in case something, something happened, that they would, uh, that, that they had a safe place for that drone to go. And, and the, the result of that is they got some, some uh, unfortunately very sad, but they got the kind of footage that, that they needed. Um, and really kind of same sort of thing and, you know, for, for moving vehicles to, and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, the FAA says, hey, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, the person should, you know, you are allowed to fly over people inside of, inside of a vehicle. And the key to that, to that whole thing is a stationary vehicle. You can fly around people that are in a stationary vehicle. And what that does is it supplies protection or reasonable protection, um, you know, in case your drone was to fall out of the sky. And it's also important the FAA, you know, they, they also kind of put a caveat on that and said, listen, we don't want you flying your drone around any kind of moving vehicles um, because two things can happen. You know, in a moving vehicle, um, just the fact that you can have a head-on collision with that, with that between the drone or side-on collision between the drone and the, uh, and the vehicle. And obviously that can, you know, as it's a dynamic environment and those dynamics change. And so that can, that can obviously lead to some, some uh, you know, uh, injury, um, you know, to the to the persons behind the wheel. Additionally, and something else to think about is, you know, whenever you're driving or whenever people see drones, if they're driving a car, it it's a distraction. And when people see a drone flying around, they are now a distracted driver. And so the drone might not hit them or or something like that, but it could be a cause of an accident. So I think those are important things to remember and kind of the understanding of why we have those rules. Now we can still get those shots. We can still fly the drone around. Um, you know, around our roadways and some highways, but we can get kind of some standoff distance. We can get a good distance away from, from those roads and those moving vehicles and still get the shots that we need um, and still be safe, uh, especially as far as the 107 and then just great drone practicing. Well, thanks, Jerry, for that comprehensive response. You know, recently drone testing locations were designated in 10 separate areas across the United States. I just saw this in the news and they're gonna be tested for many different applications. And the interesting part is that it includes the legal right to fly over people, uh, which actually violates the 107, which you were just talking about. So it's interesting that your example of health and safety is a great point because we wanna take things into perspective, which runs from the public perspective of making sure that people are safe while we're flying our drones. And, and it's also a very good point that you make about uh, drones flying and being distractions for all of us because there are things that when we see drones, we aren't normally doing. We're stopping and we're looking. So thank you for bringing that up, appreciate that. John, what are the restrictions for flying in federal wilderness areas? And I think this is a really good question, especially for this webinar. Um, I have a feeling we've got some folks who may be new to the community and, and people who've been conducting 
drone operations for a very long time. This particular question seems like it's pretty straightforward, but as you start to dig into the details, you might find that the answer isn't so easy. The answer really requires an understanding of some of the complexities of regulations for drone operators. Uh, there's many resources that you may turn to as you start digging into this particular question. These may include the United States Code, the Code of Federal Regulations, referred to as the CFRs, Federal Aviation Regulations, referred to as the FAR, and the Aeronautical Information Manual, referred to as the AIM or Advisory Circulars. I'm not a lawyer, and my response should not be construed as legal advice, but I'll provide an understanding as it relates to my review of these different publications and um, the research as far as conducting safe operations in the national airspace. I think it's important to understand, first off, what some of those different documents are. The FARs, or Federal Aviation Regulations, and U.S. Code are regulatory in nature. As such, they're the equivalent to law. The AIM, or Aeronautical Information Manual, and advisory circulars aren't necessarily regulatory. However, they're advisory in nature. They do help maintain compliance with the federal regulations. This distinction is important as you dig into the details of this question. One could go all the way back to the Wilderness Act of 1964. This act was designed to preserve the sanctity and seclusion of our nation's wilderness areas for everyone to enjoy. As such, this act prohibited motorized vehicles within the boundary of the wilderness area. Drones fall under the definition of motorized vehicles, which would not allow them to operate on the ground, therefore prohibiting takeoff and landing within the boundaries except under the special considerations for all aircraft. If you look at the AIM and a VFR sectional, again, the AIM isn't regulatory in nature, but you'd find that all aircraft are requested to maintain a minimum of 2,000 feet above the surface of lands and water that are administered by the National Park Service and U.S. Forest Service in wilderness areas. Although the AIM isn't regulatory, and this is only a request, like I said before, it does provide best practices to help you maintain compliance with regulations. There are some areas, though, in wilderness areas that you'll see depicted on the VFR sectionals or the aeronautical charts that have additional restrictions, such as prohibited areas. The Boundary Waters in Minnesota is a good example of this, where there's a prohibited area around the wilderness area that prohibits aircraft from flying from the surface up to 4,000 feet. Drones would be included in this restriction and that is regulatory. If you look at the U.S. Code and, and the federal regulations, pilots are warned that it is unlawful at any altitude to use aircraft to harass any wildlife. The definition of harass includes to disturb wildlife. This is probably not the only indirect regulations on the books that may be considered when thinking about operating drones in areas such as wilderness areas. Here's where interpretation is key. If you push the limits in operating in these areas that raise a lot of questions, you might not necessarily be violating a aviation regulation. However, you can see some of the other regulations out there 
where I think it'd be fairly easy for an enforcement officer to cite um, if you were operating around any animal wildlife in these types of areas. As you can see, what appears to be a straightforward question may have you scratching your head as you start looking into some of the regulations or guidance around it. The FAA's website is a great resource for new drone operators or anyone in the aviation community to dig into when they look at these types of questions. You'll also find flight standards district offices, which are another resource that you can talk to. Um, the phone numbers are provided on the FAA a website and they may be able to help steer you in the right direction. I think at the end of the day, it really boils down to doing your best to make a good faith effort in conducting research, doing your homework, and I always advise using common courtesies and communicating with other people, whether it's required or not, when you find yourself in these types of situations. Great, thanks John for all those great resources that you mentioned also. Um, just to note, we'll include those as part of the compiled resources after this webinar event. I think it's important to note that all of the restrictions uh, are in place when we fly our drones in a given area. And like you noted, the first priority should always be for us to be flying legally and safely in all areas and in keeping with the regulations. Thank you, John. Eric, has anyone been successful in getting a waiver to fly beyond the line of sight? And what safety measures did the FAA require? This is one that a lot of people are interested in getting, and it's probably the most difficult to obtain. Um, if you go to the website uh, listed below, there are around 18. The last time I checked, there could be 19. I think there was one more released recently. And a lot of them utilize uh, chase aircraft or distant observers to monitor the aircraft. They're very difficult to get. They did give a few out during Hurricane Harvey for uh, the airspace, but that was again with temporary flight restrictions. So they were a little more forgiving in giving those out. They coordinated with the aircraft, the emergency response and the military aircraft during that. So they were how to get out of the air during those times. And I suggest that you search and read each one of them. If you go to the website with the list here, um, the, the web link, and you can see, because beyond visual line of sight, there are three core requirements before they can be adopted and uh, your waiver could be approved. There's first, you have to have 100% proven detect and avoid technology. So they're gonna say, what's your detect and avoid technology? How has it been proven to work? And so forth. Second, you have to have a robust communication system. You have to have a solid ground control system, um, radio contact. You have to demonstrate that your communication systems are perfect, that they you have a backup if they go out and so forth. And then the last thing, this is the hardest to get, is the airworthiness certification. There are two types of airworthiness certification you have to prove to the FAA and they actually have to come out and certify your aircraft. It's a very difficult process. So that's a type certification and production certification. I, you would need an entire team or aviation program and administrative side to really to get this, though um, there are probably some smaller companies and smaller waivers out there that maybe they were able to do it easier. Again, I would suggest that you go to the FAA website and read 
uh, each of the waivers to see how that could possibly work for you. So one last thing with beyond visual line of sight, there are companies that do help with uh, getting this and the integration process. There's a site called Alta Vian, A-L-T-A-V-I-A-N.com slash B-V-L-O-S. And they specialize in the detect and avoid technologies and certifications and so forth. They could assist with any operation that wants to move forward with this process. Great, thanks, Eric. The, the bottom line seems to be to always consult with the FAA or regulatory agencies when anyone is considering a beyond visual line of sight waiver. And as you noted, to expect that it can be difficult and or time consuming to be able to secure that. Thanks, Eric. Abby, where can you find good best practices and documentation to provide to students or others who are new to drone operations other than the FAA website? Um, so there are a ton of companies and organizations that are creating a lot of really good content. Um, some of our favorites include Drone Deploy, which is a mapping software, and they have a lot of content about doing construction work and mapping work. Um, Skyward has a lot of programs and they do some really great webinars. AOPA is an organization for manned pilots that has gotten into drones and does a subscription service for uh, drone pilots to go and learn more about drones and they write great articles. Um, know Before You Fly is, a, is another type of FAA website that offers um, a lot of different content that's um, breaking down the rules and regulations. And we like to think that Dart Drones provides a lot of great information as well. So um, Alicia from our marketing team is constantly offering free webinars, eBooks, and blogs to try and answer people's most common questions. Thanks, Abby. Uh, and again, we'll provide the links under drones.directionsmag.com to those resources that you mentioned. Thanks, Abby. Sue. What are the latest multispectral and LIDAR capabilities of drones? So one of the biggest uses of multispectral imagery is for plant and soil health in both, both precision agriculture and forestry. But there are lots of other use cases uh, using multispectral sensors that depend on what other bands of light uh, besides red, green, and blue that you want to capture. So this really could be a, a whole podcast in itself. And the answer that I can give in a short amount of time is that Precision Hawk's website offers a free ebook that outlines a variety of sensors and their use cases, including LIDAR. So I've just taken a couple of screenshots to give you a sense of what kind of information is included. So a standard visual sensor collects red, green, and blue wavelengths of light, and those are our visible uh, spectrum. Multispectral sensors are able to collect these visible wavelengths as well as, as wavelengths that fall outside of the visible spectrum. So these include near infrared and shortwave infrared radiation. Um, and with these sensors, it's really important to define your goal um, from the get-go so that you know exactly what it is that you're trying to see that you can't see with regular RGB. So we have two kinds of sensors. We have uh, modified sensors and we have multiband sensors. And the difference between those two is that a modified sensor is created with a special filter that's placed on a standard visual sensor. So as a result, 
modified sensors collect three bands of light at once, just like RGB, through the same lens. And the filters can come in many different formats to display different combinations of spectral bands. So the most common formats, you sacrifice one of your RGB bands uh, to record near-infrared, for instance. So with a, a red-green near-infrared filter, it sacrifices the blue band in order to collect the near-infrared. Whereas multi-band sensors are manufactured specifically for multispectral data. And each of the bands is collected by a dedicated sensor, so there's no need for multiple flights or trying to figure out which band you want to give up. So multi-band sensors also enable, enable you to mix different band combinations to meet your needs. So the difference, so the next question is, what are the latest uh, multispectral and LIDAR capabilities of drones? And now we're talking about LIDAR in particular. And so the big difference between uh, photo group, um, LIDAR and um, aerial sensors is that the aerial sensors use uh, photogrammetry, and that's the use of photography in surveying and mapping to measure distances between objects on the ground. And with LIDAR, it's really all about elevations, really precise elevations. With LIDAR, you also get multiple returns, and what that means is that you can measure elevations of the ground surface itself, or you can also measure vertical heights such as plants or trees. So an important thing to remember here is when you're using either of these sensors, you have to take into account what it takes to handle big data. The storage, the backup, post-processing, and access to these big data sets, is, they're really incredibly large. And you have to account for that at the very beginning of the project. So that's something to really, really think about. Great, thanks for the physics lesson, Sue. Really an excellent point that you make about defining your goals prior to undertaking any of that sensory work so that we can have the best possible outcome. Great, thanks. Jerry, are there any efforts incorporating artificial intelligence that you can share? And this is a big one. This is a, you know, this is a little bit of black helicopter, I think. Some people get a little confused with, but I think it's key to, to understand kind of what is this artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence means the drone's learning something. Um, you know, the drone is now thinking on its own and understanding its own environment in some ways and learning from that. And right now, the drones have very limited uh, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, they're not learning on their own. What they are uh, doing and what, what we are seeing is, is that drones are aware. And I think that's kind of the key word there is aware of, of, of a subject that we maybe we tell it, hey, I want you to follow this subject. Or I want you to keep this uh, this car or person or, or building or area inside your, uh, you know, uh, as your main focus. And they're also surrounded or they're also aware of their surroundings. And, uh, and this technology, we're using it more and more. You know, we're using infrared cameras, that, you know, that are on the drones. And we're using uh, different other specialized cameras that are on the drones. And, and the drones just themselves understanding what they're seeing. Um, but, um, you know, and, and that's in enabling our drones just to really kind of maneuver in some really complex environments. Um, and, but one of the keys of that is a lot of these are kind of uh, pre-programmed. And so there's still that human element 
that, uh, that that's taking that's taking shape here that we're having to tell that drone what to do we're having to upload sometimes these 3d maps um, that some organizations are using and saying okay this is where I want you to fly and stay within these parameters and because we're doing that the drones are able to to fly autonomously but there's still at least some human intervention and the drones aren't quite learning they're just being more of aware of, of what's going on now there are some you know uh, there's some chatter out there I guess is you know that drones do have some uh, limited you know learning capabilities and, and we're seeing these kind of in some emergency drones that are uh, you know flying directly to uh, uh, you know a victim maybe they they hit an app or they 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 give a homing beacon and they can fly directly to that maybe give them medical treatment or or maybe just to spot those type of people. Um, even we're seeing some a little bit this uh, of this in, in the in the agriculture um, uh, fields uh, where drones are able to 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 look at crops and understand uh, the health of what the crops are and to automatically um, give fertilizer and and do other things other aspects in in our, in their agriculture field. So you know there's a there's a limited uh, AI applications right now, but as fast as the technology is changing, um, the future is coming a little faster, I think, than some people can't even imagine. Right, Jerry. This one is a, a little bit of a black box, as you noted. So thanks for making us aware of what's coming on down the line in terms of the AI specifically, and also, as you noted, the important aspect of the human element that's involved in this, too. Thank you. Eric. What are some good examples of humanitarian uses of UAS UAVs? Just if you think about the United States recently and all of the hurricanes we had, uh, one of the, the, the standout uses that I saw was during the hurricane was the ability for insurance companies to come in and assess and expedite claims quickly. So they were able to take drones, deploy them, check out the rooftops, check out the homes and the structures, and they were able to cut checks quickly to people in need. Now, of course, they gave those checks, but then they had to find people to work. That's an whole other problem. But I thought that was a, a really unique and innovative way of, of how the U.S. Was, was using drones for innovative humanitarian purposes. Also for first response, search and rescue, and so forth. There is a team of uh, UAS operators, it's called UAVators, and they uh, work internationally as well to mobilize and help people in, in areas that could be war-torn or disease-infested, and, and they work to, to use drones to help people deliver medicine and first aid and so forth. The last, I would highly recommend you check out the Swiss Foundation for Mine Action, the FSD, they talk about the, they have a report that they publish how uh, drones are being used for humanitarian issues and so forth. I'm not an expert in this area, so definitely check out those, the last two resources that I've, I've given. They, they can give you a lot of detailed information on the way drones are helping people. Great, thanks, Eric. There are new applications for drones for helpful purposes being developed all the time. Um, we see this in the literature quite frequently. The humanitarian aspect is especially useful in terms of natural disasters, as, as you noted. So uh, join us in late summer, early fall of 2018 for a Geotech Center and Directions Magazine webinar that concerns humanitarian efforts relating to geospatial technologies.
John, should educators, including higher ed, faculty, staff, grad students, seek to obtain a drone license for teaching and research? The Federal Aviation Administration Remote Pilot Certificate is the only federal certification that exists for professional users of drone technology. There's been a lot of gray area as you look over the last couple of years when it comes to drone technology. Um, some of the early waiver processes or 333 exemptions in the case of commercial uh, entities made it very difficult to go about um, getting certification to operate drone technology as a lot of the industries impacted um, didn't necessarily have aviation credentials or aviation expertise. You had to have someone with a pilot's license. And that's something that a lot of these companies just didn't have. Um, and it, it was too cost prohibited. Under the new part 107 regulations, it's become much easier for individuals to obtain the certification required as a to be a professional user. The biggest challenge for most people to operate under part 107 regulations is to pass a aeronautical knowledge exam. Most people agree that the knowledge covered in these areas are good for any professional user of drone technology to have. My personal recommendation for professionals such as educators who intend to use drone technology in their occupation is to seek the FAA remote pilot certificate. Great, thanks John. Seems like obtaining that commercial drone license via the Part 107 is probably appropriate for most in the educational realm as you noted. Thank you. Abby, please describe the process and cost of obtaining a commercial drone license. In August of 2016, the FAA launched the Part 107 Remote Pilot Certificate, which made it a very, very easy process for someone to become a commercial drone pilot. And with the Part 107 regulations, you can legally become a commercial drone pilot by passing an FAA exam that's offered at one of 690 FAA testing centers. And what you could expect at this exam is two hours of an online computer-based test that you take at one of these authorized FAA testing centers. Um, we have found that most of our students uh, spend between 15 and 20 hours on average studying to pass their Part 107 uh, exam. And it isn't something that you could just pass off the street, um, but you definitely, if you study the right way, you'll be able to pass it. And that's what we found with our students who have found that they get over a 99% pass rate on the exam. Um, so in the exam, you'll be tested on topics such as FAA regulations, understanding airspace, reading aeronautical charts, aviation weather, radio communications, emergency procedures. So there's a lot on this exam. Um, the two hardest sections are reading aeronautical charts and the weather section. And the reason that those are so difficult is it's something that you, you don't just know. Um, from your past education. So you have to learn how to, um, they'll ask you sometimes if you could fly from uh, one point to the, another point along a railroad and how many different types of airspace are you going to go through and where do you have to get authorization and how high are you allowed to fly at different parts of that flight. Um, so it's something that you just have to really memorize. Um, and for the weather section, it's not just, is it sunny outside today or is it cold out? It's um, a lot about clouds and how clouds are formed and how they affect wind um, and how, and really you're learning how to do weather as a, a real pilot. 
Um, so every time you take the exam, it costs $150. And we highly recommend that new drone pilots take a professional training course to get their Part 107 certificate. And there's lots of ways to do that. Um, there's a lot of different places that offer online training. We offer online and in-person training. Some people have found that they just um, read different articles and they feel that they're able to get ready for the test, but there's a lot of different ways to study and it depends on how, um, if it's your studying needs. So that's how you would get your uh, remote pilot certificate. Thanks for those details about the Section 107, Abby. I know that there are many who have taken workshops and coursework, as you noted, to assist them in being able to be successful in the FAA exam and to become a commercial drone pilot. Thanks, Abby. Eric, what's the method of drone flying and its setting regarding angle, resolution, and image format? This is a pretty broad and uh, vague question. It's a good question. Um, if you're using Doing photogrammetry, um, it's best to shoot around high noon, shoot in raw, recommend at least two orbits, 45 and 30 degrees. Now the good news is a lot of the 3D modeling programs and software out there does all this for you. Uh, Pix40, Drone Deploy, those programs will, will, will do a lot of uh, the, the work for you, especially if you're doing modeling, photogrammetry. Uh, I just, it's like anything with drones and and your technology, you have to play with everything. You have to play with the height, the times of day, the camera settings. Uh, sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. Um, it's it's just dependent on, on what you're flying and getting really used to your equipment. I also wanna just throw in here, it kind of ties in a little bit, is there's a great app called Hangar 360. And if you launch it, it goes up about 300 feet. It does a 360 view stitching of the area. And um, it's just it's, it's a great way to kind of launch it in the area that you might want to fly, take the data and look at it afterward and see what you could do to, to sort of um, enhance it and get your, your, your photos dialed in. Thanks, Eric. Good point that you made about the software that we're now seeing to automate the process. It's made it so much easier for us to be able to get the intended output when we have that software that does a lot of these things for us. I might note that Directions Magazine has a podcast uh, whereby they spoke with the folks at Hangar about their work, and that's available at the directionsmag.com site. John, what is the best horizontal accuracy one can expect in the orthomosaic when using direct georeferencing in an SFM workflow? There are many variables involved in the process of creating an ortho mosaic using imagery collected from a drone. This also means that there's not necessarily a straightforward answer when addressing the level of accuracy that one can expect to achieve. The variables in the process may include the platform or the drone itself, the stability of the gimbal, the camera system, the data collection plan for how you go and collect the imagery and data, the ground control station, environmental factors, as well as ground control points, and the procedures used in the post-processing software workflow. It's very common with many consumer-grade drones and post-processing software to see reports of ground sampling distances, or GSD, between two to five centimeters. This GSD is the distance between pixel center points 
in the raw imagery, which also defines a spatial resolution of an image. This is a very important value and has multiple impacts for the output products. However, GSD is not the same as accuracy in the image or the, or the mosaic. Accuracy refers to the positional relationship of the image to the ground. All the variables mentioned above will impact accuracy, and the best accuracy you can achieve will be no better than the weakest link in the equation. Accuracy can vary significantly when not using direct georeferencing or the ground control points. Ground control points allow the captured imagery and orthomosaic product to be tied directly to known positions of easily identifiable features in the imagery. This is achieved by recording the georeferenced information for these points, selecting the pixel points in the orthomosaic that define this feature, and tying the pixel location to the known reference. The equipment used for georeferencing should be selected based on the desired accuracy of the outputs. The resolution or ground sampling distance must also allow for identifying the precision required of a specific point as appropriate for the desired accuracy of the output product. The accuracy of the ortho mosaic will, be, will not be any greater than the lowest accuracy obtained through any equipment or process. According to many reputable sources and case studies, accuracies between two to six centimeters are achievable when applying appropriate equipment and workflow. When discussing high precision products, it's important to produce results that are repeatable and reproducible. When addressing accuracy, I believe it's important to evaluate your own system and processes repeatedly to validate the results. For best accuracy, it is highly recommended to always include ground control points throughout your project area with the proper distribution and space. Great, thanks, John. Sue, where do you see the greatest drone-related business opportunities in the next five years? Things are happening so rapidly in this industry that this is a really difficult question. But I have two go-to places for news on the drone industry. And the first is um, a site called Commercial Drones FM, and it's actually a podcast that provides interviews twice a month with industry movers and shakers. And the second is Skylogic Research, which is also known as the Drone Analyst. And it's a research site that keeps its finger on the pulse of how the industry is doing from a market perspective. So I just need to disclose that I don't have any business relationships with either of these companies or any of the other companies that I'm talking about. And there are a ton of other sites and organizations that can give you great insights into the industry as well. And that's actually one of the problems is that there's a tsunami of information out there about um, uh, opinions about the drone industry. And these just happen to be uh, two of my favorites. So in a guest post entitled, Show Me the Money, I'll look at where service providers are making money in the drone industry by Zach uh, Dukowicz from UAV Coach. 
it takes a look at some of the research that Skylogic did on exactly who is making money and where are they making that money. So in 2017, Skylogic sent out a survey to drone service providers all over the place, asking really pointed questions about their businesses. And the number one use case, which Skylogic Research has actually been reporting consistently over the last few years, continues to be aerial photography and videography, and not, not by a small margin. So there's a lot of industry hype out there about um, the use of drones in precision agriculture, and no doubt there are a lot of agribusinesses reaping huge benefits from this technology. But there's a number on the screen, and it doesn't show up very well, but that number is 942. And that means that's the number of total number of respondents to the survey that Skylogic did, and how this chart was actually produced. But what's not being reported is the success stories of large industries, such as oil and gas, mining and aggregates, and other industrial markets. And at the moment, really, they're keeping their successes close to the vest in order to take advantage of their competitive edge with drone use. And so both Skylogic and Commercial Drones FM have stated the need for this trend to be modified so that accurate picture of the industry can be revealed. And so that's something that's gonna be needed in the future. That being said, even though surveying and mapping is only about a third as large of the market share as uh, aerial photography and videography, it's actually ranked second. And that's great news for the GIS and remote sensing field. An important point made by Skylogic in this field is that there's been a huge effort that's been made to have solid photogrammetry techniques in ground control and flight procedures so that precise and accurate aerial data and LIDAR can be recorded. But the next step is just as important. There needs to be industry standards for the post-processing post step of the workflow as well to ensure the same thing. And so that's a software issue and um, they're making big, big strides in that actually. So the conclusion, or really maybe more accurately the suggestion that Skylogic offers for business opportunities is uh, this quote. So it says, for those commercial drone pilots who find a commercial niche, a place where there aren't many people operating but where there's a demand for the work, they're likely to make the most money. Of course, transitioning into commercial mapping or inspections isn't as easy as just knowing how to fly a drone. <clears throat> but we see a future where entrepreneurs team up with professionals with specific skill sets. For example, a licensed surveyor to provide high-end services to large industrial operations. So now we're starting to talk about partnerships between organizations to um, enable you to give value-added uh, products in the end. Well, it seems as if we're on the verge of a virtual explosion of drone-related business opportunities that seem to be coming into the future. Great. Thanks, Sue. At this point, we'd like to get our panel's opinion on where they see drone technology going in the next year. I've been working with drone technology 
since 2004, so going on almost 14 years now. Um, and it's been a very exciting field to watch grow and advance and really change. We've seen the explosion of, of uh, drone technology over the last five years, the small UAS activities that are impacting a lot of different industries. Um, as I've talked about with some of the regulations, it's been a challenging time over the last couple of years to um, bring that technology into a lot of different industry applications, but we've still seen an amazing amount of innovation and a, an amazing amount of creative ideas for where drone technology is going to go. I think over the next one to two years, as it's become much easier for businesses to begin using drone technology as another tool, we're going to see a lot of case studies and demonstrations of practical applications that truly increase efficiency and effectiveness for industries. Um, so we believe that beyond visual line of sight is going to be the next huge thing in drones. Um, but unfortunately, it's likely going to take more than a year to get beyond visual line of sight um, up and running. Uh, right now, companies like Amazon um, are working on the technology and they have the technology there but the problem is that the regulations haven't quite caught up yet. Um, so we probably won't see much progress in the beyond visual line of sight um, piece of the, of the industry for, I would guess, a few years. Other people are hoping sooner. Um, but what we see as a big change within the next year in drones is going to be the mass adoption of large enterprise companies. Um, so right now we're doing a lot of training for enterprise companies that maybe just have eight to ten drone pilots today, but they plan to scale their programs um, pretty quickly. And I know that right now you don't really run into drones off the street or see people um, flying drones. Like I, I commented, I never see anyone just flying a drone along the side of the street. Um, but large enterprise companies are almost there. They're getting it approved by their legal teams and they will start using them a lot more within the next year. Um, so that's something that we're excited about and um, getting our training ready for these enterprise companies who have a lot of uh, liability concerns that they're trying to make sure their pilots are truly ready. Well, again, things are happening so fast, but um, the commercial drones FM podcast and Skylogic have both been discussing these trends in the drone industry. And one of the things they're talking about is multi-sensor payloads. So you would actually have two sensors on a payload, such as RGB and thermal sensors, and they would be recording simultaneously. So also, and probably more significant, is partnerships between companies rather than the usual mergers and acquisitions. An example of this was given in the previous slide about commercial drone pilots teaming up with industry specialists to provide unique services to larger operations. But the big question is, how are the larger operations partnering? So the biggest news recently is the announcement that DJI, which holds, I think it's a 74% share of the market, um, has announced the launch of something called a payload SDK. So that translates into the ability to attach different sensors, such as blur thermal sensors, to DJI industrial platforms. And this is really a huge step forward because it means that the 
the sensor industry can actually focus on advancements in sensors rather than having to invest dollars into platform advancements as well. Specifically in the blog entitled Four Commercial Drone Trends to Watch in 2018, Skylogic details the following. It says investments and testing will continue in earnest in unmanned traffic management and beyond visual line of sight. So these are two situations where we're sort of waiting at the gate for something to happen um, so that we can go beyond visual line of sight and actually get integrated into the national airspace. And the second one is you'll see more news on improved sensors, hardware integration, networking, and processing. And one of the really exciting things that's happening here is that they're finding ways for the drone itself to actually start post-processing the data before it sends it down to you so you actually get um, uh, real-time information about the area that you're flying. And the third one says, look for more partnerships, software, and innovations coming from DJI Enterprise ecosystem, which is just what we've been talking about. And then the last one is about software will continue to dominate the advancements. So that, that is a true statement. And so you can see that there's four different areas that um, are really um, uh, being uh, seeing progress uh, this year in particular. So the last thing I want to say is these parting thoughts from Ian Smith, who's the CEO of Skylogic Research. And it's a quote that says, as I speak to clients, I always like to remind them of two things about commercial drone market. First, it's not a drone market. It's a data and information market. And the drone is just the data capture device. And second, the drone are aircraft not consumer products, and as such, their operations are regulated by aviation authorities. And the last bit I really like, it says, all technology advancements aside, this is a regulated market, so expect a lumpy, bumpy growth. Um, I see the military using water guns to bring down drones. No, I'm kidding. I, I think the counter technology is, is definitely going to be robust and it's gonna expand. And I think that's where the technology is really moving right now um, in private sector, um, also in the public sector. There's a bill coming right now down the pipes that they're trying to allow the police and the Justice Department to be able to counter drones in near prisons and borders and so forth. So this, this, is, a, this is a a huge move and I, I see a lot of the drone technology centering around this. The, also the FA with the remote identification and tracking, I think what's going to happen is people are going to be required when they purchase these drones to have in the software some form of remote identification and tracking. DJI already has it built in. They're not forcing us to use it. But what's going to happen is it's going to be harder to buy these toy drones from the off the shelf without possibly having a license to show or at least at the very least some software built baked into it that will allow it to tie into LTE or ADSB. I don't know how they're going to do it. There's no agreement on this right now. That's sort of the problem. But that's that's definitely where the technology is, is moving. And hopefully the FAA, as it builds out its, its technology, is that they have more APIs built in to integrate with other programs, people who are doing 
using drone software in their operations. I really would love to see, and I hope this happens, I think this will happen, is that the FA integrates with the Department of Defense Airspace for Lance, because currently at our campus, we have Miramar Base, and I was told that the Lance request for the DOD airspace here will not be part of the rollout because it has something to do with their API. So hopefully the FAA can work with other agencies, federal agencies, government agencies to, to make it a little more seamless. Uh, further out, I think what we're going to see, and, and we're seeing this with the Olympics, with that amazing swarm technology, the light shows, is there's a company that just came out and they're providing swarm technologies, the software, the lighting, and uh, using Blender and so forth, so people will do more swarm technologies. And I think you're going to see that. It's going to create a lot more complications because uh, you need a waiver for that and so forth. Um, but that's that's kind of where I see the future moving. Well, this has been an enormously enlightening panel discussion of some really intriguing topics from our experts. We've examined a number of important topics from technical to practical and have made our listeners aware of a number of important resources in the drone industry. At this time, we would like to thank our presenters and panel members, Abby Spiker Carroll and Jerry White from Dart Drones, Eric DeLucian from UC San Diego, John Beck, from Northland College, and Stu Bickford from New England UAV and the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve. We really appreciate the time that you have dedicated to making this a successful webinar event for Directions Magazine and the National Geotech Center. We're looking to have a webinar on September 20th when Drs. Patricia Solis and Tom Mueller will be speaking about youth mappers. Thank you for joining us today for the lightning talks and our panel discussion. We hope you will explore the many resources mentioned today at drones.directionsmag.com. We'll be in touch via email with link reminders. Thanks again to our talented team of panelists. Go make it a great day and tell a friend about Directions Mag and the Geotech Center.